Therapy Cafe Podcast, Episode 6. Hello, and welcome to the Therapy Cafe Podcast. I'm Kathleen Talent, and I'm a clinical psychologist. Allison Stenson and I are on a mission to break down the stigma associated with mental health issues and to support you, the mental health professional, as you strive to make a difference in the lives of your clients and to improve your communities. In our line of work, the best way to learn is not through a textbook or in the classroom. Yeah, that's helpful. That provides a foundation for us. But really the best way, in my opinion, to learn about mental health is through having conversations and listening to real people. This can supplement what you've learned in school, in textbooks, and in your CEU trainings. One of the challenges is that we all have limited time and energy as well. And what I've seen in, and I've noticed it in myself, I've seen it in my colleagues, is that um, us as mental health providers often put pressure on ourselves when we have a client or we're um, dealing with a particular issue, um, trying to help our clients, we put pressure on ourselves to learn everything there is to know about that topic, whether it be trauma, whether it be uh, a certain type of um, symptom or diagnosis. And that's impossible. It's impossible to learn everything there is to know about something. And uh, we don't have enough time for that. We don't have enough energy for that because we have lives too. And we have to take care of ourselves. So this podcast is really designed to help you get up to speed on some of the issues that you may not have time for, may not have the energy for, or even the resources to find out about on your own. And it's kind of like a shortcut guiding you to the source, you know, to get you the information you need as quickly as possible. So In uh, this podcast, we're focusing on our first topic of first responder wellness. That means taking a holistic approach, uh, mind, body, spirit wellness, so holistic wellness. And we're diving in. We're talking to a variety of people to get different vantage points. We're talking to clinicians who are applying, you know, and and working with first responders. We are talking with researchers who are doing research and we're particularly interested in how to apply that research knowledge to help people. And we're also talking with those with lived experiences, the first responders themselves. So you can learn firsthand in their words uh, what they need. And um, the reason we chose this topic to start with is because there's a real immediate need for therapists to work with first responders. They are seeking out therapy now like never before, especially this past year. And uh, they need our help. And we need to meet them halfway, do the best we can to learn what their needs are, what their culture is, what what their personality is like, and um, just kind of listen to them, hear in their words where they're at. It That's part of what is called cultural competence. You know, we just need to kind of expose ourselves to their culture, which can be really different. Uh, it's interesting because for first responders, 
a lot of aspects of their culture and even their personality can be different from therapists, from mental health professionals, but we also have a lot of overlap. We see uh, and are exposed in different ways to traumas, um, maybe vicarious traumatization or, you know, that kind of thing. And um, we kind of have some overlap. So that's really interesting too. And we talk about that. So here at the Therapy Cafe podcast, we're here to help you. We want to empower you, the mental health professional, in order to help others and give you the tools you need to do that as best as we can. And uh, taking a holistic approach along the way, mind, body, spirit, wellness. So you'll find information about us and the podcast at www.thetherapycafe.com. In this episode, I'm talking with Sergeant Renee Plum of the Prince George's County, Maryland Police Department Psychological Services Division. Let's get started. Okay, welcome to the Therapy Cafe podcast. And today I am thrilled to have as my guest, Sergeant Renee Plum, also known as Gunny. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, Gunny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And um, Gunny is, um, well, I, I'd like you to just describe a little bit about your background. You, you're currently at Prince George's County, Maryland Police Department Psychological Services Division. That is correct. Yes, I'm a 26 veteran uh, of the police department in Prince George's County. I'm currently a sergeant with the Psychological Service Division, and we're basically responsible for the mental health for all department employees, uh, retirees, and immediate families. So we've we've got a pretty big base for clientele to uh, to utilize our services. We currently have a spot for three full time clinicians. We're actually short a clinician, but even when we were fully staffed with three clinicians, we were looking to expand because we are needing that additional support. We can't keep up with the demand. We have two sworn members. I just got somebody new in the unit with me, and we are kind of the liaisons for the clinicians, and we also oversee the peer support team, the chaplain corps, and we coordinate much of the training given to officers uh, in the field of mental health and wellness. Okay. Wow, there's a lot going on. What are what are um, some of the changes and things that you've seen in these last few years regarding behavioral health? Um, I think we're doing a much better job of breaking the stigma. Uh, when I came on 26 years ago, the the view of law enforcement towards psychological services and mental health, you know, for our perspective, was one of don't go down that road. You know, you can't hack it if you need help. You, this job isn't for you. And so what we're seeing through a lot of work and being honest, more honest with each other about the impacts of this job, we're seeing more and more of these younger officers willing to come in early and keep a problem from becoming a crisis as opposed to waiting for it to be a crisis. Now something's happened, internal affairs is involved, their career's in trouble or, you know, Unfortunately, sometimes we do have officers that complete suicide. So, you know, we're, we're seeing that shift and it's a really amazing shift to watch happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. And it, for those uh, therapists who aren't um, familiar with uh, sort of what, what's involved with becoming a police officer, how, could you walk them through a little bit of kind of the beginning of you know, how they might start out their careers and then the different kinds of things that they, because they, they see a lot and do a lot. 
Yes. Yeah, and it's, you know, I even look back at my career, it, it was never what I thought it was going to be. You know, I, I thought it was going to be all this action and helping people and saving people and I was going to make a difference. And I've had to remind myself several times throughout my career to remember the people you could help because there's so many we're unable to actually help. Um, but when you start out, you go through about 10 months of training in the academy, then you go through typically about another three months of um, field officer training where you're actually out there with a veteran officer learning the job as you go along, you know, kind of on the job training, almost taking what you applied in the or taking what you had in the academy and applying it. Um, typical day, 10 hours. Um, right now, we're, you know, kind of short on officers. And that's kind of a national narrative, but I, I think that in general, um, we're, we're way below minimum staffing what we'd like to see. So what's happening now is there's frequent mandated overtime where you're being held over from your shift. So it's not uncommon for officers to be working 13, 14 hours. Um, and then, you know, you, you get up, you go to roll call. There's three shifts for us, days, evenings, mids. Um, you go to roll call, you meet with the squad, um, you talk about any important pass downs for lookouts, for crimes being committed, you might sign your uh, your summonses for court, kind of paperwork tidying up. And then everybody goes out to their cars, they go into service and they start responding to dispatched calls for service through 911. Um, if I were to kind of try and put that in a neat package, I'd say it's long periods of boredom with all of a sudden these intense um, kind of highly charged incidents and then trying to get yourself to teeter right back down to go to that period of boredom again. So there's kind of this roller coaster ride that tends to go on uh, for most officers through their day, at least uh, in our area because of population crime rates and that type of thing. So, you know, for most officers, they come out, they don't realize how much paperwork they're going to be doing. Uh, I think that's a little bit of a shock. And I don't think officers realize um, how much people need our assistance and then how limited we are and what we can do. Oh, wow. Okay. What's an example of something like that when, when you say that, you know, um, and even being limited? Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it, something as simple as um, someone that's homeless, you know, and you're, you're trying to get them into shelter for an evening that you know is going to be cold, but for one reason or another, they don't qualify for the shelter. Um, or it may be that you have a child abuse case and everything in you is, as a human being, the way this child's living, they shouldn't be living this way. But if the state law and the, and the policies placed um, by the different entities that oversee child abuse and neglect go, hey, this is the standard and it's just below that standard, to have to walk away from that sticks with you, it stays with you. When I uh, teach the recruits in the academy, that's one of, one of the things I tell them, the hardest thing on this job isn't the stuff you do, it's the things you end up not being able to do and the frustration that builds from that. Um, most of us got into this job because we wanted to help and make people's lives better. We wanted to protect them. And that realization that you, know, you, you can't do all the things that your young mind set out thinking, oh, I'm gonna do this. Um, it's, it's a little disheartening and, and to get beyond that and try and remember, hey, but you did help this person and you did save that person. That's what you have to hang on to. Wow. That is really powerful. It, it, 
it makes me think about um, there's a term I've heard called moral injury when as it relates to yes you know trauma do you think that 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 relates to what you're speaking of I think it does um, you know you you have people around you that love you that that talk very positive about you and what you do what your job is but inside you walk around with the the very visceral memories of incidents you've been on and what you could or couldn't do or the grief that you see. The amount of grief that most law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMS personnel see, um, I, I don't think you realize what that toll takes on you till you're heading towards the end of your career and you know your significant other starts saying things to you like you're not who you used to be. You don't seem to really you know, be here. You don't seem to be present. And what it is, is it's a, it's compassion fatigue, it's checking out, it's all the things that come with the job where you're trying to kind of compartmentalize to get through. But I, I think one of the things that I worry about with this, this young generation coming on behind me is just, you know, the amount of grief that we see, you know, the, the grieving parent, um, you know, from a homicide or suicide the um, notifications to families after vehicle accidents where there's a death. Um, there's just so much grief that I don't think we, we can really fully prepare people coming onto this job for that and the toll it takes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and as you described that, I don't think a lot of people, including therapists, quite either realize the extent of it or even can get their mind around it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's the key is, is we're changing and we're learning to be um, a little more trustful of the clinical profession. I think the flip side of that is I think the, the clinicians are going to have to kind of change what they think police officers are um, because we're human beings. We have flaws. We have feelings. Um, but if we were to break down and, and show our emotion on scenes, people would look at us and go, that person shouldn't be doing this job. So there's an expectation that we're kind of these, these insensitive, get the job done type human beings. But the truth is, we're all very caring, sensitive people. And that's why we went into this profession. So I, I think when the face comes down that you put on at work and you're sitting in that office with a clinician, it's pretty important for the clinician to make sure that they check their own kind of bias of what they think a police officer looks like, because what they're going to find is we're all just human beings doing an occupation. Um, and that kind of changes maybe kind of the questions when you, when you start going, hey, what's your goal for therapy? It might change some of the questions that are asked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what would be, so peer support has, has really come on board you know, particularly these last few years. Mm -hmm. And, and I think about that and how it connects to therapy because, um, you know, getting a police officer in the door for therapy could be quite challenging. It is. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> what are oh. some of the biggest barriers that, that you hear about or, or you, you know, observe? Well, I, I think the first thing across the board that therapists need to realize is there's such a level of um, concern and, and um, worry about if I tell the truth, 
am I going to keep my job? And I, I think that that's the hardest hurdle to get over. And, I, and I'll tell you one way that I managed to get my peers into clinicians. But I think that first hurdle is making sure that the clinician is culturally competent and understands we're a little different than the fire department and the EMS and, and the rest of those entities in public safety because we carry firearms. So with us, the simple notation of a diagnosis on a piece of paper can have ramifications on us being able to maintain a job skill and it can actually lead to us being dismissed from our occupation. So knowing that you have a culturally competent therapist makes a huge difference because they understand, you know, if you're going through insurance, they understand the coding and how the coding makes a difference for that diagnosis. And if it gets back to the department or if it ends up being a workman's comp case, which then makes a notification to the department, that starts being a, a real hurdle that officers are afraid to even approach it. So for me as a peer support coordinator, um, I have an in. Officers allow other officers to speak freely and they take that credibility of that officer and that officer's reputation. So for me, I refer to the therapist that I refer to by name. I tell them what the experience has been for other officers that have used those services and I explained to them after vetting these clinicians that, hey, listen, they understand. They understand the hurdles of the department. They understand the things you're worried about. You can trust them. But it all starts with there being a vetting process by a credible sworn member that comes back and says, hey, brothers and sisters, you can trust this person. You can go to them without adverse effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the therapist has to earn that. Very much so. Yeah, you, you know, I would highly recommend if people want to work with first responders, you know, volunteer and do some training with the with your local police department. Um, right now, officers want to learn. We see that our health is not doing what it should do. Uh, Hypotension is a pre, uh, presumptive uh, illness within law enforcement. So we know there's negative effects on our bodies from this job. Um, and officers want to do better. So if you're looking to kind of get your foot in the door, go to the local police department that you're around and say, hey, listen, I wanna do some training on the impact of trauma, or I wanna do some training on, you know, um, some type of, of sleep assistance, or, um, you know, just go in and do an education piece about suicide. Um, if you look at the suicide rates within law enforcement, we have to do better, uh, bluehelp.org. I reach out to them and, and, I, and I've gotten statistics from them, but we have to do better at stopping the problem before it hits that crisis level because with us having immediate access to a firearm, many times we don't get the intervention time that we would get in other areas. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so there's many ways the therapists can get involved, uh, even um, aside from in the therapy office and working one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. with, with the client, right? It yes. sounds like reaching out, making that connection. Most agencies are starting to, to get on board with having a peer team. And I know here in the state of Maryland, we have a pretty good network that has been started and, and formed. So if you're interested in working with first responders, you know, reach out, find out who the peer coordinator is in your area, sit down and talk to them, get on uh, one of the resource lists, um, we vet, we, I have clinicians that I use to help me vet other clinicians. Um, I work with the IAFF union and, and you know, we vet clinicians that way. And we all 
call each other and I'll call, you know, the, the peer support for the fire and I'll be like, hey, I need a clinician in this area. Do you have somebody on your resource list? So if that's something you want, you know, don't take it personal. Most of us, you know, we're not clinicians. We know we're not clinicians, but we know what we're looking for, for the type of uh, injury and trauma that we see on our job. So that's what we're looking for. We have a lot of people, unfortunately, they're claiming to be first responder clinicians that when we start vetting them, we find out they've never had a client. And so, you know, we're already a pretty suspicious culture within law enforcement and, and you know, public safety. So just be honest, if, if we're going to be your first client, you'd be amazed. Many times we're more than willing to, to take that step. But if we catch you not being credible with us, um, that's going to make it very hard for you to build that rapport or trust back up. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things that um, you look for or that tells you that a clinician has that cultural competence working with law enforcement? For, for us within law enforcement, I think one of the, the first things is just understanding um, the importance of diagnosis, you know, and, and what that diagnosis is. I can tell in about the first five minutes of talking to a clinician whether they have dealt with that. Um, there are certain key phrases that um, are red flags for officers um, occupationally. Um, we're always concerned about if I go through insurance and insurance flags it as a workman's comp case, once workman's comp gets it, you know, they have access to our files and now we're concerned, will something in that file, will it say, I can't uh, permanently, I cannot work shift work, or um, this is a permanent disability or a loss of a job skill. That becomes very noticeable early on once you get into the workman's comp arena. So I would tell any clinician with a first responder sitting in front of them, ask them that question, like, where are you at with workman's comp? Because that is a completely different way of dealing with things than somebody that just wants to get help and they're not looking for the department to have knowledge of it. They just want to get better, whether it's to be more engaged at home, whether it's better coping skills for the grief they see and the trauma they see on the job. Make sure you're asking the first responder, you know, not only what their goal is as they start therapy, but whether or not there's going to be the, the, the side cart of um, workman's comp going along with you as you go through, because you're going to have to protect your client from some of the things on that end. Um, and to give you an example, on our agency, um, the chief's office can actually, through if it's a workman's comp claim, they can actually order the officer to produce the clinical notes. Well, the clinician has the option to say it's not in my client's best interest to do that, but that officer's still stuck there with, I'm either insubordinate by not producing these notes, or I'm turning over these notes, or I'm providing a note saying, my clinician says it's not in my best interest, which again is going to be red flags within the department. So, you know, just be mindful of those things and have that conversation. Um, our staff is very good about um, being very careful with the notes, making sure the notes are exactly what they need to be and nothing more. Um, so that if that ever happens, the officers already know it's, we've had established cases where the officers already know, hey, the, the clinician you know, protected my privacy in this. And that rumor, that word of mouth gets around and now the officers know, hey, there's nothing to worry about going to the, the clinicians at psychological services. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So it sounds like being advocates for mm -hmm. your 
an advocate for your client and, and really navigating all of that um, because there are, there are real um, serious ramifications potentially. Absolutely. And some agencies are better than others. You know, there are some agencies that as soon as you say, I'm under the care of a clinician, it's hands off. There are other agencies that try to blur those lines more than they should. So, you know, get to know the culture of the agency that you're in, find out, you know, kind of what their mindset is, and then see if their actions are backing up what they're telling you, you know, talk to the officers that are your clients and say, hey, listen, how does the department treat you with this? They'll tell you in a closed session, they'll tell you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we typically don't lack uh, the ability to speak our minds when we hit that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's about, like, as you say, building that trust. Yes. And, and if you don't know something as a therapist, it's okay yes. to say that, but just being open and honest about that. It goes well, a long I think way. There's a, yeah, I, I think if you ask your client, hey, what does your typical day look like? Or what does your typical week look like? You're going to get a better picture because... You know, we have some officers that work so much overtime and part-time and their regular shift that their day may look very different than somebody who works just their scheduled tour for duty and nothing more. You know, that balance between professionalism and, and that work life and then your home life and how you're dealing with that, that varies based on the type of job you're in. You know, you may be on, uh, like I've been on call for the majority of my career that impacts me at home. So, you know, ask each one of your clients, what does your typical day look like? And, you know, after COVID gets over, I highly recommend that clinicians do ride-alongs. Contact your local peer support coordinator and say, hey, listen, I wanna, you know, be a resource for you guys. Could you hook me up? Could you get me on some ride-alongs with your officers? And, you know, just kind of get that, that feel of what it's like in a shift, you know, that that roller coaster I talk about, you'll be there, you'll see it, you'll see the physiological responses that the human body goes through. And then how all of a sudden it's like somebody hits the brake and now we're back to just taking a report. Um, but you'll be right there to see it. Yes, yes. That's one of the things that I experienced uh, doing a ride along with um, the fire service and just how, you know, there was a lot of sitting around and then boom, you know, yeah, there would be a call and then you're just you're all over the place in terms of, you know, that reaction. Yes. And yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's um, been really exciting um, and, and, and just inspiring in so many ways is to see the peer support grow within, you know, for, for um, law enforcement as well as um, in the fire service. How did that work, you know, in terms of what, what have you noticed over these, I would say last maybe five to 10 years in terms of peer support and how it's grown and, and how therapists have kind of been involved with that. Um, for from my view of, of my particular agency, um, the peer support team was kind of there, but nobody really knew um, 10 years ago. Um, it was kind of a select few that got to go to this training, but there was really no idea of how to get a hold of these people who was on the team, who wasn't. Um, and as critical incidents have occurred and it's happened that the right people were in the right place and then there started being this building of, hey, you're like me, you wanna help, let's, let's keep building this program. Um, 
what we've gotten to now is uh, 2019, I trained every single officer, the rank of lieutenant below in our, in our uh, department. And one of the things I did at the end of my class is I said, if you're interested in joining peer support, you know, sign up and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to start trying to get on, on top of this. Of course, COVID had other plans for me with my training, but um, we had 245 officers sign up and say, I want to be a member of peer support. And there's no financial benefit. They don't get paid for it. There's no bennies to it. It's literally just officers saying, I want to help other officers when they're struggling or if they're having a hard time. I'm going to be willing to pick up that phone at 2 a.m. when somebody has come home to a house and a post-it note that their significant other just left them because they're tired of the person never being home because of the job or you've been in a departmental shooting and you almost lost your life. And now your significant other goes, if you go back to this job, I'm out of here. I, I can't live this way. Um, and to have that ability to pick up the phone and call and have someone talk you through. And, you know, for me, I see us as JV versus varsity. Our job is to learn the skill and explain the skill and then gently pass our colleagues off to the clinicians and let the clinicians do that next level of work that needs to be done because there is so much mistrust. You know, as a police officer, I can walk into almost any group of police officers and have a conversation that you being a clinician, even though you have more education, background experience than me, you would walk into that same group and you'd probably get silence and very cordial you know, feedback. So to kind of take peer support and make us the liaisons to the clinicians has worked very well. Um, the other thing is I speak very plain to my officers. I use very common terminology and language about the psychological services aspect of things. You know, when I explain to them what the body goes through physically with our job, whether it's the way the brain processes trauma, whether it's the way we release uh, stress hormones in, in fight or flight, when I explain to them in very common terms what that is, and then I also explain to them in very common terms how, you know, talk therapy can assist in us processing and resetting our bodies and getting back in balance. They understand that. If you start going down the path of kind of that existential, like, um, you know, oh, meditation, you know, and believe it or not, officers are open to meditation. But when you say meditation, it has a very different feel than if I say, you know, hey, you just need to be mentally focused on where you are right now. And we're going to purposely focus on something positive and trick our brain into thinking that route instead of the negative route, you see the light bulb go off. So it's taking the, the skills that you've learned as a clinician and turning them into to kind of that very basic common sense approach that even though, uh, you know, psychology is a soft science, turning it into almost a factual thing of this is what we know the body and brain does. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. You know, even EMDR, when you break it down and you explain about REM and you explain about storing of memories and you explain about what happens and then say, when I do this, this is what I'm, I'm mimicking. All of a sudden the officers go, okay, I'll give it a try. But prior to that, there was so much skeptical thought process going on about, oh, is this hypnosis? What is this? I don't believe in this. But we were able to kind of bridge that gap with very common terminology. 
Yes, bridged. I, I, I love that word because that's, that's what I uh, see on the other end um, from the clinical side. It's like really as clinicians, it, it, it seems to me that we have an opportunity like no other, like never before to, to kind of meet you all um, halfway or part way, you know, and form that bridge to help, you know, these, these um, police officers get the help they need or, or empower themselves, you know, to, to work on whatever issue or, you know, um, situation, you know, has affected them and, and really get them what they need, help yes. them empower themselves. So, so folk being able to, it, it seems that we're also, um, I've noticed that we're, we're kind of learning to speak each other's language in a way, because yes. I've been hearing so many, you know, different first responders start talking about psychological terms and, and things that in a real way, in a very useful way, direct way that I think, yeah, we, absolutely. yeah. And vice versa, we need to start learning your lingo too, at least a little. <laughs> well, they'll take on the bad, the bad traits that we have, but yeah, <laughs> it's a, a gallows humor will get you. But yeah, I I think that, you know, the other, the other thing that I would recommend is don't expect an officer to be devastated by an event um, preconceived, you know, early in my career, um, I had an issue with a clinician that I had been through some significant things. And every time that clinician saw me, the clinician would say, hey, how you doing, Gunny? And I'd be like, I'm good. I'm fine. Are you though? Come on now. And it was, you know, kind of that thing of, you know, just, just if I'm okay, I'm okay. Because then you start questioning yourself, well, should I not be okay? Am I not okay because I'm okay? And it kind of sends us down a different path. So, you know, just kind of keeping that thought of um, treating the problem, not the person, making sure that you kind of come back to that basic thought of, you know, for some people, they have amazing coping skills. I've seen people on this job deal with things that I just sit there and shake my head and go, how are you still standing? And then there's other people that something very small is able to completely cripple them and put them down on their knees. So, you know, make sure you're looking at each individual and not looking at the incident and going, oh my goodness, you went through this incident. You can't be okay. You'd be surprised at the resiliency of of a lot of the people in this occupation because many of them get into this job because they've had trauma as a child. Uh And so that's a very different level for them. You know, one's very personal and one's secondary. And for them, hey, I've seen worse than this, you know, so they kind of have that that attitude going into it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So so you have seen that 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 does happen. I mean, not to generalize because there's obviously a lot of individual mm-hmm. differences going on, but, but you, from your experience or vantage point, the backgrounds coming in prior to, to going into law enforcement, an individual may have, have seen already had trauma. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing right now. I, I absolutely love how diverse our agency is. Um, every background, every upbringing, um, it's just amazingly diverse. When we when we train the recruits, we'll take a time to kind of ask them, where are you from? Where did you come from? And I mean, it's just eye-opening. And then, you know, on certain blocks, we'll have them talk about, hey, what was it like for you? Because you come from a different culture, a different background and, and educate each other. And we tell them, listen, you got a classmate that is from Africa. 
ask them what it's like because you're going to be dealing with a community that's from Africa when you're on the job. So ask them what is proper, what is a way to be able to build rapport quickly, learn from them. Um, and we try to teach them to do those things because our community, we're part of it. You know, it, it doesn't matter where you reside. It doesn't matter where you go into service. At the end of the day, I don't think there's a police officer out there that if they're, I, I could be in a different state and if someone needed help, I would stop to help them. That's what this profession's supposed to be like. So, you know, learning those backgrounds is huge and I'm amazed to see the diversity and I'm really proud of it. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Wonderful. We, you know, talking about, you know, the childhood and the trauma in childhood, we've even started talking to supervisors, you know, to, to bring up the ACE, you know, let's, let's talk about how, what someone has had in childhood can impact them in this job and how that may impact your um, subordinate supervisor relationship with them. How do you keep them motivated? How do you keep them where they feel they can come to you and talk to you if they're having problems? And how do you account for that without making someone feel like, you know, there, there's something wrong with them or that, you know, it's something to be ashamed of. And, you know, we've, we're trying to do a better job of, of talking to our, our supervisors about being mindful of that and talking to their, their troops. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like such an opportunity as well to, to focus on kind of a strengths-based approach, uh, resiliency building, and, and, and thinking even about as you say, the, the terms matter, the way the language matters. So for therapists to be able to speak about, instead of talking about disorders or illness, to switch it around and think about mental fitness, things like that. Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the classes that I teach, one of the things that I, I tell the officers is, you know, disorder diagnosis, what do these terms mean? And Ultimately, there's no reason to have a diagnosis of anything other than insurance, because you as clinicians know what you're seeing and know what is kind of causing what you're seeing, or you're going to be figuring it out. The whole purpose of a diagnosis is insurance. And when officers start understanding that, they go, oh, okay, I'm not being labeled because there's something wrong with me. This is about money being paid back from insurance and being able to continue the care through insurance. And it changes their, their self-perception of what it's like to get that label. Because uh, getting labeled is a, is a pretty big kick in the gut when you are trying to seek help. And then if that label is one that within your um, professional community holds stigma, you know, yeah, I never thought it would be me. You know, what am I gonna do with this? Am I, am I broken? Am I repairable? Can I still do this job? What does this mean for me? So I try very hard to get people to understand. I, I know that you guys use the DSM, but for us, it's not the labeling. Our clinicians don't diagnose. They don't need to. There's no insurance involved. There's no copay. But what that allows you know, our officers to do is to go in and get help without that label hitting them. And I think it makes all the difference in the world. And you know, I, I tell the officers, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, looks like a duck. It's a duck. A clinician knows a duck when they see a duck. They don't need to write down, it's a duck. And I said, if you can find a clinician that they can understand that and they can help you, that's huge. 
Um, and I've seen a lot of clinicians do a lot of things to make sure they're protecting their clients on the diagnosis end of things when there is insurance involved. And I think being culturally competent in that is one of the biggest things you guys can do. Reach out to the clinicians that do see first responders, find out what that coding is, find out how it's applied and protect your client because the wrong diagnosis can lead to them uh, losing the ability to carry a weapon. The ability to carry that weapon means they can no longer do this job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so um, and in terms of like, if um, there may be some fears or uncertainties, things like that, if, a, if a, say a therapist is working with a client who is a police officer and they ask them a question like, well, what's wrong with me? Am I broken? Or, you know, that kind of thing. What would be a sort of a culturally competent response to something like that? The therapist I think could looking do. at it and going, you're not broken. Your body is having normal physical reactions to the things that you have experienced. Um, when we have departmental shootings, we really stress to everyone involved, what you're going through for that acute stress is normal. This is the body's normal reaction for what you just went through. And then we talk to them about the importance of doing healthy, mindful things to make sure their body reassesses. And we tell them, listen, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to go through all these things. If we're hitting around the month period and these things aren't starting to subside, you got to come in and talk to us again, because that means there's something not going quite right with the healing process, with the recovery process and getting back to normal. Just come in and talk to us. And that kind of opens it up. So I would say probably reassure them that what we do isn't normal. You know, I tell officers, think about how many dead bodies you've seen in your career compared to your next door neighbor. That's not normal unless your neighbor's a mortician maybe, but you know, it's, it's not normal to see what we see. So don't be surprised that your body doesn't normalize it and doesn't just go, okay, you know, this is, you're going to do this for 20, 25 years and this is all okay with your body. Expect it to not be okay and do what you can to mitigate that so that you have a long life and you're healthy and you're happy and you have good relationships. Absolutely. And, and on that note too, what do you see towards the end of a career or even into retirement, what, what happens behavioral, behavioral health-wise? What are some of the things that... Uh, that has changed a lot. Um, it used to be, it was a check of the box to check out of our office when you were retiring. Uh, it was kind of hurry up and sign this, let me get out of here. Um, but what we're seeing now is we're seeing some retirees actually coming back in because they're having a hard time. Things that they thought they had long forgotten about their brain has a way of bringing those back up and they get that little tap on the shoulder of, hey, remember this. Um, uh, communication problems at home um, because you know they kind of shut down, stay in their own head. And then that's the whole, you're not present. You never seem to be happy. That flat line of emotion. Um, so we see that coming back in, but I think we see burnout earlier than we used to. Um, I don't know why that is, but I definitely think around the 10-year mark, we're seeing a lot of burnout. And then the person's just trying to survive and figure out something to do for that 10 to 15-year mark. But they're still looking at another 10 years to go before they can retire. So there can sometimes start being almost a jaded, disgruntled type feeling. So by the time a lot of officers are checking out, there's kind of this, I can't wait to be done with this. 
and they don't want to take that moment to go, let me do a mental health check. Um, surprisingly, there's been a lot of conversation about mandated mental health checks within our occupational field. And I think it would surprise most people to find most officers are in favor of it. Um, and and I, I say that because, you know, 10 years ago, they would have been completely against it by and large. But most of us are, are starting to understand that what we do does have a negative impact on us. Um, it does affect us. You know, why do we worry so much when our significant other hasn't called us to say they got home? Why do we automatically go to such a, a negative idea of what's happened to them where most people would gear it back and be like, oh, they must've gotten stuck in traffic or whatever. When we look at things, we look down the road and go, what could happen that's negative? How could someone get hurt or die? And so our kids go, you're too protective. You're, you're, you're closing in around us and that starts communication problems. So I'd say towards the end of the career, what you're gonna see is a lot of times stress within the um, relationship arena, whether it's the significant other or the children. And I think you're gonna see this desire for peace uh, when you talk to officers and they're talking candidly with each other, you hear a lot of, man, I, I just want, I want peace. I want to sleep through the night. The majority of us do not sleep through the night, um, whether that's a side effect of shift work and, and everything that comes with that, whether it's that, you know, tapping into those stress hormones too much and never resetting correctly. But most officers that have had a, a large period of time on the department we all laugh because we all seem to wake up around three o'clock in the morning. No reason, you know, there's nothing really there, but ask your clients, hey, how's your sleep? What's your sleep pattern look like? The other thing is we're not great at, um, you know, we'll say oh, I only sleep a couple hours a night, but then when you talk to us, we're going to bed and getting up in a time frame that there's no way we would have the hours of sleep we say we want to have. So we're pretty bad with, with that calendar type setup. So I would definitely kind of go down that path as well. Mm -hmm. But towards the end of the career, um, I, I think it's just the exhaustion, the exhaustion, but then the looking forward to retiring and, and getting on to what's next. There are a lot of officers, their entire identity is built up on this job. Um, you know, every t-shirt they own, every conversation they have, all their friends are law enforcement. And when they separate from this job, that changes. And so sometimes there's a loss of identity and a loss of value, which I think everybody in retirement goes through a little bit of that loss of value. But I think that if your whole social network has been law enforcement, your friends are going to keep working the job. They're going to keep moving on and you're not going to be part of those conversations anymore. And I've seen a lot of officers struggle with that once they've retired, that they feel like they've disconnected from, from their world, from what they were in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if, if they're not um, getting any kind of support um, from a mental health provider, that certainly would be an important time yes. to get connected then. Absolutely. Yeah. That, and, and keeping the support as you go through your career, you know, we really stress to our people, keep your outside friends, you know, don't isolate just into law enforcement. It's very easy to do that because I can have very candid, uh, 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 candid conversations with other law enforcement officers and I'm not judged for how we speak and our lingo and our jargon and they understand it. Whereas if I were to bring some of those same conversations up, uh, you know, over the dinner table with family friends, they'd be like, oh my goodness, like you need help. 
and not realizing that it's just our every day. What we see every day and what we are used to is very different than most human beings. So I, I always tell people, keep those outside friends because they're gonna be your, your ruler. They're gonna be your guidance and your measurement of, hey, am I, am I getting too, too ingrained into law enforcement? Like you've, you've gotta keep that reality check because the world we have in law enforcement shouldn't be the outlook we have towards our lives. We see the worst of things every day in other people's lives. So making sure you remember there's this whole positive side of life there is so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think clinicians, at least some of them, it's hard to grasp or maybe they don't grasp just the sheer magnitude of what on a given day, say a police officer might encounter. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, when you think of, so when it comes to therapists working with a police officer, what are some of the things that, we talked about cultural competence and some of the, the things that therapists um, ideally would do. What are some of the mistakes and, and issues that you've maybe seen or heard about the therapist have, have done? Well, I, I count myself very fortunate because I, I do work with three clinicians and um, I've learned I've learned so much through them, but one of the things that, you know, I would say is um, that trust factor. If you, if you aren't careful with the trust factor and you lose that, you're never gonna rebuild it. Um, one of the clinicians um, that I speak to often, you know, learned very early on, if you go in very confidently and you're confident in your skill level, the officers are gonna respond to that. But if you go in and you're kind of faking the funk with that, they're going to sniff it out and they're going to smell that fear in you. And, you know, I've literally had cases where officers have started trying to do reverse psychology on the clinicians to try and test things. And I, I don't think it's that they're necessarily just trying to kind of be ignorant about it. I think it's a test to see whether or not you can really handle me. You know, can you, can you handle what I'm going to lay on you? because we know what's in our heads. We know how we feel. Um, you know, and I, I've done it myself where I will start out and I will give basically the appetizer of an incident and based on the person's facial expression, based on whether they look comfortable with just that little tidbit I gave them, it determines to me whether I can go full on and tell them everything that happened or if I need to go ahead and censor it. So, you know, be confident in your skill level have a great trauma base. Because again, it's not just what we have on the job. Many of us come into it with trauma previously in our life. Um, so have a great trauma base. If you don't have a great trauma base, get it before you start trying to get into this. Um, and then, you know, the, the other thing that I would say is be confident about what you have, but be flexible. Um, one of the things um, that I had feedback from officers on with my officers and clinicians was that if, if you tell me to read a book, and I'm not a person that reads books, the ability for me to have some control and say, and be able to go, hey, Dr. Talent, I don't really like reading books. You know, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to read that book. And you go, okay, well, what's something you do like? Let's find something in your wheelhouse that you are willing to do that will accomplish the same thing. That makes a huge difference. And it's funny, I just told the clinician the other day, I had so many of, of that clinician's clients come back and go, oh, he was great because, you know, 
you know, I thought he was going to make me do this, but once I told him I really wasn't into that, you know, like he didn't force me. So for officers, the, the control, the trust, the safety, having some say in the type of methodology that's applied to us is huge. And don't discount, because I'm telling you, we've got officers that are really excited about trying to get into yoga. We have officers, even though we don't necessarily use the term, you know, um, meditation, we have officers that are getting very interested in being mindfully present and mind focusing. Like we're opening our minds to things in a different way that I don't think you would have been able to accomplish 20 years ago. Yes. And there's so much momentum there that I sense, you know, and, and so much opportunity. And, mm-hmm. and it seems to me too, as you talk, that, that even some of the, the errors or things that clinicians may not do right or need to learn, um, it's, it's like we don't get trained on those things necessarily in, in school. You know, and, and yeah. this stuff is not textbook. You have to almost throw away the textbook, take what you need, but then be able to adapt it and, and learn and apply it in a new way to working with, with these individuals. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I've been fortunate enough to put out to uh, places like MIMS and, and other state conferences is my dream is to eventually have a conference that is out there for clinicians that have an interest in speaking to public safety and first responders, where that group within your cultural population can get together and, and hear us talk and hear other clinicians that are currently embedded with public safety talk about, hey, this is, this is the things you need to know. Take these classes. This is what it's like. These are the fails. These are the successes. Like, I, I just think in general, if we could start having something where people interested in dealing with this population have the ability to learn from the groundwork that's already done, it would be huge. Yes, absolutely. There's, there's a big need for that. That would be a fantastic conference. If, and um, if I if if I were to tell you the areas, um, you know, just absolutely trauma, uh, everything trauma focused, relationships, um, a lot of issues with relationships, and substance abuse, a lot of alcohol issues, um, because people tend to self medicate with alcohol when they have problems with communication, um, and there's a there's a cultural identity, and I don't know why it's there. It's been there as far back as I can remember. I remember watching TV shows where the law enforcement officer has a rough day, and you see them drinking bourbon or whiskey, you know. So we're trying to break down that within peer support. But if I were a clinician looking to deal with this community, absolutely, those are the big three. You know, get get a good background in those three three areas. Okay, great, great. And if a therapist is interested in learning more um, about what's going on with, with peer support or, you know, the law enforcement community, what are some resources that they could? Well, and that's a difficult one. That's one we're trying to do better with. I know here in Prince George's County, all of the public safety behavioral health units um, have started communicating with each other monthly and we're getting better. There are apps out there now that we're trying to look at where an officer would be able to have vetted resources right on their phone and go direct with those resources. Um, But I think it starts with finding out who's in the area that you service and hitting up those places individually and saying, hey, who is your peer support coordinator or do you have a clinician? 
and then saying, hey, can I, can I meet up with you? Can I talk to you about what I have to offer? I know for us, you know, we have a couple go-to um, clinicians. We have a couple go-to facilities for alcohol treatment that we utilize. And the reason why we have them is because there's become a relationship. You know, I can call them up and by first name say, hey, I got one of my guys that needs some help. And there's this, this very, it almost feels like a friendship, but it's a professional level, but we're getting the job done because of who we know and the relationships we've built. So reach out, get to know the people, whether it's fire, whether it's EMS, whether it's police, whether it's corrections, whether it's the dispatchers, which is the group a lot of people forget about. Um, get together, find out, you know, hey, who do we contact? I want to be here. I want to help and get vetted, get on that resource list. Absolutely, wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much, um, Gunny, for sharing all these insights. I mean, it, it's so valuable for clinicians to hear. And, and again, there's there's so much opportunity to learn more and to do more. Yeah. And what thank is the- Thank you all for what you're doing. Cause I, oh, thank you know, it, to have people that say, hey, we realize there's a special need here and to be willing to spend the money in the training and go through the education process and, and, you know, kind of really put the work into it. Um, hopefully it's going to make a difference and impact us long-term. Awesome. What is overall um, the main take-home message you, you would like mental health professionals to know? Um, if you're dealing with law enforcement, Understand that it's a little bit different than the rest of public safety because of the job skill requirement of the firearm. Um, make sure that you have a great background in trauma. Um, and then just lead with confidence on the skills that you have um, because we very much test to see whether this person can handle us. Um, but be very confident in your skill set. And be willing to make that first reach out because um, officers do not do well with having to ask for help. It's going to be typically a peer person who has had previous contact with you that says, hey, I got this friend. You guys are referred to as friends often. I got this friend. They're really great. It's my clinician. And we, we possess you. We, we call you our clinician once you're in. And that's how I can tell when things have switched. So if you get a first responder, get feedback from them. Check for that feedback often because that word of mouth, that's gonna make a difference for you getting your foot in the door where you become our clinician. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much again, Gunny. And I will thank include you. some um, details and information you know, for clinicians to find out some more on the show notes. So right. again, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Make sure you check out the show notes about Sergeant Plum at www.thetherapycafe.com. Coming up on the next episode of the Therapy Cafe podcast, we're going to be talking with licensed clinical psychologist and former police officer, Dr. Stephanie Kahn. 
You won't want to miss it. So please subscribe to the podcast right now. We'd love to get your feedback and hear from you. And if you could rate the podcast and give us a review and give us some feedback, we'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, you can check out the show notes and information about our guests and about us as well at www.thetherapycafe.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is Dr. Kathleen Talent at the Therapy Cafe Podcast, signing off. Until next time.